from the Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hi, podcast listeners. Hello, everybody from, I was about to say, good morning, Vietnam. No, I'm not going to go there. Hello, I think everybody. you've said that before. Have I really? You have that feeling, like, here, we're getting going. And, yeah. <laughs> Wherever you are, <laughs> Vietnam or anyone else in the world, yeah. good morning to you, uh, or good afternoon, good evening, and good night, depending on where you are and when you're listening. <laughs> that was another movie reference. It was. Truman Show. Indeed. Indeed. Wendy, you have been doing Father Mike Schmidt's Bible in a year yeah. with some of your Lady friends. I recently finished half the year, uh, which is exciting because we are halfway through the year and I'm mostly sticking with the schedule. And you came to me a few days ago with such excitement in your heart because you reached this point that after some travail (laughs) and some of those odd Old Testament realities of people getting slain and... Listen, Things that are really puzzling and confusing. I'll tell you, it has been quite a challenge for me to listen to the, especially the historical books of the Old Testament. Um, most days, uh, Father Mike also reads from the Psalms, and often those are like the consoling or right. familiar parts, but there's a lot of unfamiliar to me stuff in the stories of the, the history of judges and kings of the Old Testament. And uh, it's it can be really challenging. I'm impressed that that the uh, Hebrew people recorded all these things because they're not very flattering. It's almost <laughs> like an ongoing it's like confession, a confession, yeah, yeah, of of unfaithfulness, of sinfulness, um, just day after day. And these are the chosen people, right? But which... it's actually just confessing their unfaithfulness in the face of God's faithfulness, yeah. you know, which is... The story of all of our lives, it's really. It's true. It's true. But it is distressing to listen to and confusing at times. And I think, you know, it's helpful as a Christian to be keeping in mind God's God's got the big picture in mind here. Yeah. And, but we have to live our lives in the day-to-day and we're you know, watching this day-to-day of the Hebrew people that is is pretty difficult. So anyway, it's it can be discouraging at times to be listening to this. Um, you know, just it's not it's often not a happy story. Um, and this uh, recently, um, we were listening to more Old Testament stories of kings and their unfaithfulness in Judah and Israel. I just have to say, if somebody's hearing like a tap 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 tap. That is a woodpecker. <laughs> on the outside of your on office. On the outside of my office, <laughs> pecking away right as we're doing our podcast. Go away, woodpecker. You pecker. Well, that never happened before. <laughs> <laughs> we, we live in the woods. We're not in some center city studio. We live in the woods of Pennsylvania, and we just had a woodpecker pecking away on the outside of my office. wall there. Sorry to interrupt your biblical reflections, lover. It's all right. All I was going to say is that we've been, as we're reading this, we're also reading some of the prophets who spoke to the people of that time. So, it's an awesome way to learn to read the prophets who were talking to the people that 
we're also reading about. So the coordination in this uh, Bible in a year at times is really helpful because the prophets are speaking to people and places that we're also reading about, you know, in other books. So it's very interesting. But what happened was that uh, we got to Micah, the prophet Micah, chapter four. If anybody wants just to be uplifted, go open your Bible to Micah chapter four, because here was for me listening day after day to these very discouraging actions of God's people and so many prophets saying, because of this, you're going to suffer and, you know, woe to you. And here's the suffering that's coming. And you feel like, well, yeah, it kind of should be because they're really not following the Lord's ways at all. And and yet here comes in Micah chapter four, God is speaking through the prophet Micah and giving this vision that God has, not just for his chosen people, but through them for the whole earth, mm. for for us, a, for us, for deliverance from our sin, for freedom in His whoop, love, whoop, whoop, whoop. to live in peace with one another, and oh, my heart was just so uplifted. It was like this aching for like God's plan to be revealed, and it just in the course of how we were reading, we are reading in in this Bible in a year. This was the moment where I just saw this light piercing through the clouds of God's good plan for us, and it was mm. so encouraging. I was so excited I came to tell you about it because I was you just... were and you were so excited to share it, and I was so delighted to see the uplift of your heart because you had been in yeah. some sour, painful places <laughs> with all that other stuff. Yeah, this is just the way my weird brain works. But as you're talking about this peace and harmony and yeah. and hope for the world. <laughs> 70s Coca-Cola commercial in my head. I'd like to buy the world a Coke and live in harmony. It's the real thing. The marketers got a hold of me. Saturday morning cartoons, man, in the 1970s. Well, Jeez. you know, that's our good desire for peace yep. in the world. Yep. And and it's in, it's in the Old Testament. The Lord spoke of it. So, good stuff. Hey, I want to update uh, people on some stuff going on at the Institute. Oh, yes, please do. So, we have a slate of fall courses coming up, both online and in person. We have uh, August 14th to the 25th online, we have Theology of the Body 2. So, if you've already taken TOB 1, you are eligible to take TOB 2. It's one of my favorite courses to teach. It is a deep dive into the Song of Songs. Um, that's not the whole course. We, we cover all the sections of the catechesis that we weren't able to cover in TOB1, but the special emphasis comes in the section on the Song of Songs, where we get into some of the rich, glorious meaning of that sacred, erotic love poetry from the Old Testament. That's August 14th to the 25th. Then September 11th to the 22nd, we have online our course called The Philosophy of St. John Paul II mm. with my friend and colleague, Dr. Peter Colosi. Uh, he's a great, great teacher. And if you've ever been this, – this is a foundational course for, for um, our students, for the master's degree and the certification. It's, it's a really important course to understand what is the philosophical underpinning 
of John Paul II's theology of the body. John Paul's whole philosophical project is to unite uh, subjective experience with objective truth, so that the church's teaching no longer feels imposed on us from the outside, but it wells up from within our own hearts. And Colosi does a great job teaching that course. Then in October, we have online Theology of the Body Level 1, October 9th to the 20th. If you haven't taken the TOB1, please, please, please sign up for that course. Uh, and for all of our courses, if money is an obstacle, uh, please, please apply for a scholarship. We, we never want money to get in the way. Then in November, we have a brand new course. This is going to be a live course, not online. The others I mentioned were online, but in person, Bill Dunahy, my esteemed colleague and dear friend, will be teaching for the very first time. Drum roll, please, Wendy. There we go. Poets for the Kingdom, the sacramental stories of C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. Yeah, this one, this one, like we had to expand. Uh, we had to get a new block of rooms because this one is in such demand. I think there are some spots left because we did expand and get a few more rooms for it. Uh, but this one f was filling up as soon as we started posting it. And Bill Dunahy, if you if you don't know Bill's work, please go to our YouTube channel and and watch his Way of Wonder uh, show with Father Patrick Schultz on our YouTube. Uh, Bill Dunahy has such a gift to to enter into stories. He's an artist himself, a, a poet himself, and he's gonna he's gonna break open C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and their poetry and their stories in, in a way that links it with the whole theology of the body in a way that's gonna rock your world. And as we all know, this has been a, a there's been a real resurgence in our generation in this time of interest in C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, and for good reason. They, they are proclaiming the gospel in a way that the modern world can receive. It's going to be an outstanding course, so check that out. Great. Are you ready for a question Let's from a it. patron? A patron, indeed. Um, anonymous patron? It is an anonymous patron. This Thank time. you, anonymous patron. Whoever you are, we are so grateful for your support of the work we do here at the Institute. Uh, okay. I believe it's... If I'm remembering correctly, this is from a woman. Um, she says, I'm very grateful for this podcast. I've been listening to them for almost two years. I've grown a deeper understanding of God's love for us, the meaning of marriage, and so much more. There is a question I've been struggling with for quite a while. I hesitate to ask it because I don't want to sound like I wish anything worse on Jesus than what he endured during mm. his life and passion but I know there's an answer in TOB. There are people close to me who endured incest, mm. repeated sexual abuse as a child, Mercy. or rape. Mercy. This includes my own mother. Mercy. I understand that Jesus was and is with each of these people in their suffering because he entered into our suffering and brokenness. It's also said that Jesus experienced everything about being human except sin. Yet Jesus was never sexually abused. Sexual abuse is almost a punishment worth, worse than death. This type of abuse seems to have a uniquely horrific effect on the victim's body and spirit. How can T.O.B. explain that Jesus truly understands the deep pain endured by women or men 
who've endured this vicious crime. Come, Holy Spirit, come, Holy Spirit, come, Holy Spirit. Such reverence is needed in the wounds we have endured, and particularly these wounds, which, as our questioner rightly states, have a, a, a very particular grievous impact on the human person. Mm. And uh, without, I don't want to just jump in like, I have an answer, I have an answer. There, there's, there are mysteries here. There are, well, the, the passion and suffering of our Lord is a mystery of our faith, right? We speak of the sorrowful mysteries. And when we, we jump in too quickly, like, here's my answer to your question, I, I, just, I just feel like how unjust that is. It does not do justice to the complexities and sorrows and sufferings of our hearts just to say, here's the answer. That said, I, I want to speak to what I believe is the answer to this person's question. Jesus experienced everything that we experience except sin. Now, what does that mean, except sin? It means he never committed sin. But Scripture has this mysterious line, so important for us, that Jesus became sin. He became sin without committing sin. So, innocently, he bore our sin. That's another expression. What does it mean to bear? It does mean, in bearing our sin, he bore even the experience of our sin. He bore and knows not only our sin, but our wounds from other people's sin. What is happening on the cross? What's happening on the cross is the sum total of all horrors that have ever been dished out on a human being and on all human beings. All the horrors are being dished out on Christ. I'm, I'm intrigued by the way she began this by saying, I don't want to wish anything worse for Jesus. Mm. And my heart right away went to there couldn't possibly be anything worse because Jesus did experience the worst of the worst. And she says, but Jesus didn't experience sexual abuse. Now, physically, that may be true, although I say it may be true, and then I say although, because we don't know the horrors that he experienced at the hands of the soldiers. Um, not everything is recorded. And there are certain mystics who have said some things that could be interpreted as there were some really horrific abuses of his body that he endured that are not recorded in Scripture. But whether or not he may have been violated in that way by soldiers who were mocking him when he was scourged, when he was crowned with thorns, and remember he was stripped naked, uh, who knows what kind of mockeries, who knows what kind of abuses Christ might have endured when he was stripped naked that we have no record of. But that said, 
the point is not that Jesus physically experienced all the exact horrors that that others have experienced, right? So we we could point to any kind of torture, you know. Um, some martyrs were were impaled. Some martyrs were were burnt at the stake. Some martyrs were decapitated. Some martyrs were grilled on an iron. Uh, Jesus was not grilled on an iron. Jesus was not decapitated. He was not burnt at the stake. He was not impaled. Nonetheless, what happens mystically in his heart, and when we say mystically, that does not mean some kind of fantasy, like it didn't happen. It means it really happened, but at a that but at a dimension that is mysterious. We can't uh, diagram it. We can't paint it. Uh, we can't. We can barely even speak of it because it's so mysterious. But at this mis- mystical level, this mysterious level, which is very real, by becoming sin, it means Jesus identifies with all of the wounds of humanity, with all that all the ways we have been sinned against, and that's what sexual abuse is. It's the abuser's sin, and it's the abusee's being sinned against. Jesus identifies with the person who has been abused here, because he was abused, and he knows mystically in his heart the very experience that your mother experienced being horrifically abused as she was abused. Jesus knows exactly that experience. He has borne it. He was united intimately with your mother in experiencing those horrors. I want to speak from my own experience here. I was not sexually abused per se, but I experienced a level of abuse, a physical abuse as a six-year-old that was, yeah, abuse is the right word, and physical is the right word, a physical abuse that was really horrific and terribly disturbing, and it has been a tremendously painful, deep wound, the origin of a lot of suffering in my life. And I've been looking at this prayerfully for a number of years, like 20 years, and in recent times, uh, I've had to look at it again look at it more deeply, look at it from new angles, and let the light of Jesus come into it and, and experience my identification with Jesus and his identification with me in that horrible abuse that I experienced as a six-year-old. And I have come really and truly, I can proclaim this not just like a theory from something I read in a book, but from a lived experience of encountering Christ there identifying with Christ there. And as my spiritual director would say, even becoming Christ there. I've tasted it. I've experienced it. And I can say this from my own experience, that horror, and it's a mystery. I cannot diagram it for you. I cannot paint it for you. I can barely speak of it. But I can, I can attempt to tell you as strange as this sounds, it is true that I have tasted what the saints talk about, that their horrors and their sorrows and their greatest sufferings have become a joy. I've tasted that. It became a joy in as much as I knew, I knew, I knew I was one with Jesus in that experience. Mm. 
And there is nothing more joyful than being one with Jesus. And I, 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 I'm, I'm just so aware of, you know, the rolling of the eyes and the disbelief and the, how is that, how can something horrible become joyful? It's a mystery, but I tell you, I know something of it. Uh, this, this is something that the saints have pondered for, for 2,000 years. How is it possible that in Christ's cry of agony, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Which is the consummate moment of Christ identifying with all of the horrors that have ever been dished out on human beings. Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? In that cry of abandonment, at one and the same time, it's a mystery, but at one and the same time, he's experiencing the joy of the Trinity. He's experiencing the joy of the love of the Father and the the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's living it because he was never, never not one with the Father and the Spirit. Even in the cry of abandonment, it's a paradox, it's a mystery, St. Therese speaks of this, JP2 speaks of this in his uh, document on the new millennium, where he's quoting Therese, who says, how is this possible that, that Jesus experienced the joy of the Trinity on the one hand and all the horrors of the passion on the other? And she says, I can't say much about it, but I can tell you I've experienced something of it in my own life and prayer. And I can say the same, that this horror, which is no less a horror that I experienced as a six-year-old has become sweetness and joy in knowing I've been united with Christ in it and in the promise that that horror I experienced will become glory and be transformed into glory. This is what makes the gospel good news. And this is why I'm a Catholic, because the Catholic Church is the place of the fullness of God's grace poured out And it does spill over the borders of the Catholic Church. You don't have to be Catholic to experience God's grace. But the fullness of that grace has been poured into his bride, and that bride is the one holy Catholic Church. And you're going to find all the horrors of humanity in the Catholic Church, all of them, and rightly so, because they must be here in order to be redeemed. They must be here. And this is the promise. This is the good news. It's almost too good to believe, but it, let us, Lord, grant us faith to believe it. All of your mother's horrors will be turned into glories and dancing and joy and celebration. That's the promise of the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's the journey from Good Friday to Easter Sunday. And look at the audacity of the church to call that day of horrors good Friday. Lord, I pray, I pray that this woman and her family who have experienced the horrors of incest, the horrors of rape, the horrors of sexual abuse, and any other listener to this podcast who has tasted these horrors, and whatever horrors, whatever manner of horrors we've all experienced, Lord, Lord, help us. Help us to enter into your promise, your promise, and you cannot lie, for you are the truth, that our horrors that you bore will be transformed into glory as we make our way with you to Calvary through the horror of your death and into the glory of your resurrection. We are united with you and you with us each step of the way. Thank you, Jesus, for this promise. 
Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I when you were talking about that cry from the cross, Jesus' cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I just sensed, you know, that is such an important scene of the story of Jesus' suffering to really enter into with the cries of our own hearts, um, to understand just more and more deeply what he how he bore our sufferings on the cross. Um, so I, I do want to encourage this listener to spend time with that scripture, that description, um, and let it let the Lord's taking on of that agony uh, really just minister, minister to her heart, even as just one who loves those who have suffered these things. Um, I also was thinking of the scene after the resurrection when Jesus says to Thomas, come and place your mm. hand mm. in my wounded side. And that invitation to be so close to his suffering, but on the side of resurrection, the, the sense of being united, but not only in despair, but in true redemption in true glory like to find for thomas and for all of us if we are thomas to recognize jesus has borne our wounds in his body isaiah the prophet said that you know it's our sins that he's borne on his body so um to maybe also to spend time with that image from the gospel of Place yourself in the position of Thomas, reaching into that wound in the side of Christ and experiencing the love that flows out from him there. The Catechism says, I don't have the direct reference here, but we'll find it and put it in the, the notes in post-production. Um, the Catechism says that in Christ's cry from the cross, that cry of agony, the cry of every human heart is contained and felt by the, the heart of Jesus, and opened up and offered to the Father. That's where we find our identification. So, we'll, we'll find the direct reference to that quote in the Catechism and, and put it in the show notes. And uh, I would invite everyone to, to pray into that quote from the Catechism, that your cry, the cry of your heart in the horrors and sufferings that you have borne, was felt by Christ on the cross and offered to the Father. You ready for another question? Yes, let's okay. let's do it. Okay. This is from a listener named, I believe, Benoit. Hello, Benoit. Christopher and Wendy, hello from France. But first and foremost, thank you for sharing your insights, both both theological and personal, on the theology of the body, the holy scriptures, and life as a Christian. I am a man in my late 20s, and I'm getting closer and closer with a female friend. I personally think she's incredibly amazing and am honored by her interest in me, either as a friend or more. In many ways, I think anyone who would be in a relationship with her would be very lucky. But I don't feel physically attracted to her. N not that I think she's not pretty. She is very pretty. Is this physical attractiveness to be disregarded as less important than other aspects? 
or would you say in the light of TOB that it is an echo of Adam's exclamation when meeting Eve? Bless you, Benoit. Bless you, brother. Bless you, bless you, bless you. I, I, this is terrain familiar to my heart, and I think I can speak into it, and I hope it'll, it'll shine a light on your heart. Uh, I'm intrigued by the way you said, uh, you said something like, should this be disregarded as less important? Uh, yeah, you? yeah. I, the end of his question said, um, is this physical attractiveness to be disregarded as less important than other aspects? Right. And is physical attractiveness less important than other aspects? Yes. Yes, 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 yes. It is less important. Is it unimportant? Uh, it's not unimportant but it's, it's less important. What we should be attracted to is the person. And the person is not just the soul, right? Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas is very clear on this. My soul is not I, right? I am not my soul. What is the human person? The human person is the unity of body and soul. And what the heart desires, this is straight out of JP2, this is almost a direct quote, what the human heart desires is integral beauty, beauty of body and soul united. Here's our problem. Benoit, we live in a disintegrated world, and we ourselves are disintegrated, and we are formed and shaped and taught to think by a disintegrated world in disintegrated ways. The very idea that we separate out physical attractiveness as a category unto itself is already itself a sign of our disintegration, right? If, in fact, we are only attracted physically to the person, well, here's the problem. Those physical things, those physical qualities of that person are repeatable, meaning you can find those same physical attributes and even to a more attractive degree in any number of other people. And, and there's, something, there's something to be honored in the heart about, I mean, it's a mystery. Why are we attracted to certain qualities of a person? There's certain things that kind of we find ourselves naturally drawn to. We should show a certain reverence to that. Like, it's not all bad. It's not wrong in itself. I'll just give you one example. What I don't know why, but I find red hair very attractive. Wendy, you know very well, and I know very well that... I don't have red hair. You don't have red hair. If my criterion for falling in love with a woman is you must have red hair... Well, Wendy would think she needs to dye her hair red for me to love her, right? See, here's the point. Red hair or any color hair is, is, is repeatable, right? It's a quality of a person that you can find in any number of other persons or not find, right? Qualities are repeatable. Physical attractiveness is repeatable. But the person, the person is unrepeatable, Wendy, there is no other you in all the universe. There never was and there never will be. And inasmuch as my love is for you, and inasmuch as you know my love is for you, 
then there's no threat in you to realizing and recognizing that your husband has a certain love for people with red hair. There's an attraction there, a certain love, right? It's not spousal love. It's an attraction to, and you are not in as much as, and I'm not saying we live this perfectly or I live this perfectly, but in as much as I love you as in your unrepeatable person, I can say to you, isn't her red hair lovely? And you don't crumble thinking, oh my gosh, I'm a brunette. Uh, oh my gosh, my husband doesn't love me. Oh my gosh, our, our relationship is threatened. Because you know, in as much as you know I love you, you're an unrepeatable person, you know that that person with red hair is not you. Only, this is JP2. This is from his book, Love and, Responsibil love and Responsibility. Only to the degree that love reaches the person. And by person, he doesn't mean just the spiritual. No, person means the integral reality of the unity of body and soul that is that person. Inasmuch as love reaches the person, the integral mystery of the person, only then is it on a, a foundation that can last forever. If it just stops at physical attributes or spiritual attributes, and not the integral mystery of the unity of body and soul of the person, it's threatened. It's threatened by disintegration. I would say to you, Benoit, that, and it takes one to know one, brother, this is not an accusation or a scolding, it's just a, a recognition. I would say the very phrasing of the question is an acknowledgement of the disintegration, because you're really attracted to her and think she's really fun uh, in her personality, but her personality has not been united in your own way of seeing her with her physical attributes. And that's a journey that you have to go on. Uh, that's a journey, Wendy, that you and I have been on. Um, and it's painful. It's Disintegration is painful. And it would certainly be painful to her if she knew that, wow, I really love her personality, but she's not so physically attractive to me. Right there, there's a rupture. There's a split and I would invite you to pray, Lord, help me to see her integral attractiveness. Help me to see that what I am attracted to about her personality, her heart, uh, which is so attractive, help me to see that that is manifested in and through her body person. And brother, I've been on that road. It's a difficult road. That The road to integration passes by way of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we have to die to lies we believed about what's going to make us happy and what's going to please us. And we have to die to that stuff. And we have to learn to see the world as the Lord sees the world and, and the way the Lord sees person. So pray to see the beauty of that person in her integral beauty, body and soul, as God sees her. Uh, that's the path, my brother, and, and theology of the body will be an aid to you on that journey. I, I just invite you to make use of the resources we have here at the Institute, our books, our courses, our, our patron community, and the ongoing formation we offer there. I think you'll find real, real help uh, for what ails you in those resources. I just want to say I, I hear Benoit's words slightly differently, and of course, we're always just you know, reading what people have written and trying to interpret yeah. based on, on how it strikes us. And I'm all ears. I want to hear what you heard. 
I I was so struck by his um, just real honoring of her. Uh, as he said, she's incredibly amazing. I'm honored by her interest in me. I think anyone who would be in a relationship her with, with her would be very lucky. There's a lot of just strong words of yeah. of appreciation of this female friend that are beautiful and uplifting to my heart to to hear them. And I'm thinking about uh, some of JP2's reflections on the words, my sister, my bride. Yes, yes. In the Song of Songs, why, why does the lover call her my sister, my bride? And he reflects on that, on the certain deep appreciation of her person that that comes before yes, yes. the relationship yep. of of bride of that um, physical union of man mm-hmm. and woman that mm-hmm. is implied by the word my bride the words my bride. So I feel almost like in the some of the wording that um, Benoit chose to describe this woman a certain holy experience of that my sister and yeah. I, if you know where in the tob like i just want to reference that if we can for him where jp2 is reflecting on the significance of that i think that that could be very helpful to just ponder that a little bit more in his experience that he's having right now in this relationship yes it's in chapter two of part one. Okay. No, sorry. Chapter two of part two. Chapter two, Chapter of, part two of part two of the theology yeah. of the body is where he gives his reflection on the Song of Songs. And shameless little plug here, I wrote a whole book just on this section of the theology of the body where John Paul unfolds the Song of Songs and the marriage of Tobias and Sarah. And that book is called Heaven's Song. And I, I give an in-depth explanation of what Wendy's getting at here. And I just want to affirm, Wendy... Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good insight. I think that's where Benoit is. Yeah, I, I think the very sense that I get that you're uh, re- that Benoit is regarding her as a as a, a very precious gift is just a sign of of God's grace and goodness. And and we don't know yet where this relationship is going to go. And I think what your heart was to say to Benoit is. Don't hesitate to continue Correct. pursuing this relationship because you Correct. feel something is lacking here. Correct. Because that's not that shouldn't be an indication to just set it aside. To stay open. Yes, that God is um, going to continue to work, and He is working. And neither one of us, and nor does Benoit, know the end of this story. The Lord knows, but but that sense of like that's a grace to recognize the gift that she is, and he even says she's very pretty. So there's you know not a reluctance to see her as and to see her beauty. I I could almost see like a, a sense of a gift, even of of waiting for that. A time yeah. when the relationship is right to experience yeah. a physical attraction, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I, I really do feel like there could be. It's not a, a contradiction of what you're saying, but just a sense of like we've got to try to, you know, be open, keep the channels of grace open in our relationships, in our prayer, and to recognize God can be doing something really amazing here, and that if if He has that. We don't know. It's not like every relationship goes a certain way. Right. But 
but just to trust. And what you have experienced is 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 like a a deepening and deepening physical attraction uh, to me mm-hmm. because of knowing and loving me. That is, you know, experience of grace. Yes. So, yes. and I'm so glad. <laughs> That's a good thing. It is a good thing. Yeah. And we did. We started off as dear friends, and that friendship grew and grew and grew, and that became the foundation. That whole point about the bridegroom saying, my sister, my bride, Mm -hmm. JP2 says, the sisterly fraternal theme of love as brother and sister is the proper foundation on which to build spousal love. And oftentimes in our culture, we skip that altogether. We jump right into the romance, right into the erotic passion of it all, and we fail to build that foundation that enables the erotic passion to, to last and not just be a flash in the pan. And, and that's, that's the integral beauty of the person, is to recognize the fraternal dimension as the foundation on which to build the spousal dimension of love. So, good insight, Wendy. That's why we do this podcast together. Thanks. Yeah. Our next question is from Philomena. Hello, Philomena. I'm a 21-year-old student in the middle of reading Theology of the Body Explained right now. Whoa, you went for the big fat one. That's Good for right. you. And she says, I'm loving it so far. Thanks for dumbing it down for us and also for the footnotes with book recommendations to go more in depth. I have a question on Genesis. To me, it always seemed like Eve was being punished more after the fall because the Pains during childbirth curse seems to be only about woman, whereas the sweat of your face curse seems to be about both man and woman. What are your thoughts on this? Also, in your book, T.O.B. Explained, it sounded like you, or JP2, interpreted a helper fit for him as referring to both man and woman, not just woman. Did I read that correctly? It's the first time I've heard it this way but it makes intuitive sense. Philomena, I'm so glad you've taken up my thick commentary on Theology of the Body. I think most people go for the short version, Theology of the Body for Beginners. So, it it edifies me to know somebody's actually reading that 600-page commentary. That that delights me. Um, Regarding the first part of your question, did Eve bear more of the burden of the consequence of the fall here in this whole increase in childbearing pain and suffering? And did Adam kind of get off with a a lesser punishment? Um, I I do believe, if I'm recalling correctly, that John Paul II says, it seems that Eve, he doesn't use this expression, but got the short end of the stick here, or has has more of a, a burden to bear. I, I would say, yeah, I think it does seem that way. Uh, I don't. I think, I think there's also a particular grace attached to to the whole mystery of childbearing that the woman experiences that the man doesn't experience, right? I mean, the mystery. I mean, I've seen this five times mm. in you, Wendy. Mm-hmm. You bore five of my children, which also happened to be your children. Uh, that's kind of how it works. It sure is. Right, uh, the woman alone gets pregnant, but she never gets pregnant alone, as I like to say. And because of our union, you bore five of our children, and the mystery that you experienced 
the graces that you experience, the, 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 the intimate connection <laughs> that mm. you experienced with our five children by carrying them in your womb, all of those blessings, all of those graces, I only experienced vicariously. I, I, don't, I don't get that to experience the joy and blessing of carrying a child in my womb. I don't get to experience the bond of having carried our children in, in me. I don't get to experience the blessing of, of experiencing the bond of nursing a child and looking down at that child feeding from my own body. I, I don't experience those things because I'm not a woman. And that's the way God ordered it. So there is, I'd say there are multitudinal blessing, blessings, <laughs> blessings that a woman experiences in the mystery of being the one who bears and nurses the children. But with that, with those multitudinal blessings that I don't experience, there's a flip side to that in original sin, the consequence of which is there are burdens that are also connected to being a woman that I don't experience. I don't have a monthly cycle. I don't have PMS. I, I, I don't experience labor pains. Um, I don't experience sore nipples. Uh, and breast infections. Never had a breast infection in my whole life. I've seen you have several of them, and they ain't pleasant. No. Um, and I think it's right to acknowledge those differences, both on the, in the blessing column and in the burden column. Mm -hmm. That's part of the difference of being male and female. And then I got so immersed in trying to answer this question, I forgot the second part. What was the second uh, part? Yeah, about... Um a helper fit for him. Oh, a helper fit for him. Right. Uh, before I get to the helper fit for him, let me also add that I think, this is my take, I think circumcision is kind of God's way of trying to balance things out a little bit more. Like the woman bleeds every month and she's so much more intimately connected to the whole mystery of childbirth and the promise given to Abraham is offspring, offspring, offspring. I want you to image my infinite fatherhood. That's the promise given to Abraham. Offspring more numerous than the stars. Yeah. The sign of that covenant promise is the cutting off of the extra skin on the tip of the man's loins. I mean, hello, talk about vis visceral business. Uh, we know that that's a foreshadowing of the circumcision of the heart in the New Testament, and physical circumcision is not required of Christians, um, as it was required of Jews in the Old Testament. But I think God is saying to Abraham and to all of his offspring, look, if you're going to image my fatherhood, it's going to take the sacrifice of flesh and the shedding of blood right where it hurts. The woman already knows this in a more intimate way. The man has to learn this. And I think that's what the sign of circumcision points us to. On to the helper question. I will make a helper fit for him. Does this apply both to the woman and to the man? Does the, does the woman need a helper? Uh, yes, she does. She does need a helper. And I think it's fitting to, to recognize that this can go both ways, right? And we can draw that out from JP2's teaching in as much as JP2 is clear that the experience of original solitude, it is not good for the man to be alone. The Hebrew word man here is not capital A, Adam, the male. The Hebrew word for male here is small a, 
Adam, which means the human person in a generic sense. So, all of us experience original solitude, and all of us are in need of the cure of that solitude, which is help. Now, help is kind of a weak English translation of a Hebrew word that I know I'm going to butcher here, but it's something like ezer konegdo. Uh, and ezer konegdo is this like warrior term. It's used so often in the Old Testament in relation to God as the help of Israel in the time of battle. Uh, and, and that gives a whole different flavor to what it means that woman is the help She's the Ezer Konegdo. She's the helper warrior. She's the, she's the one who shows the man who he is in the sense that they're involved together in a battle and both have a particular role to play. And Adam cannot fight this battle and win it on his own. And this is fulfilled ultimately at the foot of the cross where we see the woman. Right? Jesus is the Redeemer. He's the only Redeemer. But Mary is his help at the foot of the cross and opens perfectly as a woman to the gift of that redemption. So, Jesus is the Redeemer and Mary is the fully redeemed at the foot of the cross. And, and the fulfillment of that whole helper reality is brought to, brought to fulfillment right there at the cross. Adam needs Eve and Eve needs Adam. Now, it's, it's not exactly parallel between Christ and Mary because Christ is the Redeemer. He's a divine person, right? And in the strict sense of the word, uh, or in the strict sense, God doesn't need anything. But in as much as he takes on a human nature and becomes a new Adam, he's also in need of the help of a new Eve. Mm. I sense in Philomena, in both of these questions, there's a looking at what is the difference between man and woman, and is it um, kind of a burden to be a woman? Yeah. Kind, yeah. Of, an, a, a kind yep. of an unspoken question there. Have yep. you been extra cursed? Have you been created as a kind of a second class, yep. just a, a help to the man who's first class or something like that? So, in in... I don't know that that's your concern, but I know it's a, a thought that certainly has occurred to many women over, you know, in many circumstances. Well, it's the origin of the whole feminist movement, really, that, that feeling like women are, are somehow second-class citizens and, and to claim equality with a man, they have to somehow deny their own femininity. That, that's, that comes straight out of Satan's playbook right there. Right. And I think I think the things that you shared just are are good balance to that concern. You know, the the recognition of some of the unique blessings of womanhood. And I just want to share too that these blessings aren't limited to a, an actual Correct. experience of bearing and feeding children, because Correct. they we talk about this the the physical reveals the invisible in the spiritual mysteries that while we might say this is the symbol of right. it, a pregnant woman, a nursing mother, it's not the only lived experience so of important. those realities. Yep. That that being a woman can involve um, a kind of a 
pregnancy that doesn't have to be a physical pregnancy in the sense of uh, an ability to make space for another in your life to provide the the situation that is best for another person's growth. That's what pregnancy is, making a space and providing for the growth, but that can take other forms and that that nourishing and feeding can also take other forms. And we need to embrace that and ex- not be cut off from the blessings of that by fearing that somehow it denotes a second class reality. Like we're all equally dignified by our creation by the Lord in His image and likeness. So I think that's the truth that we need to receive and, and begin to embrace more and more the the unique blessings and call of being a man or of being a woman. And I think that's kind of maybe underlying all of this is like, how can we more and more experience that? Well said, Wendy. And this is why we call Mother Teresa, Mother Teresa, right? It's not just some title slapped onto her because she's a nun. Uh, What does it mean to be truly a a nun? It means a total dedication to a spiritual motherhood, which is not a fake motherhood. It's motherhood in in an even more mysterious uh, dimension. And, And we could put it this way, every woman on the planet, is called in some way to be a wife and a mother. Some are called to live that out through a particular calling called marriage. But every woman, whatever her state or place in life, is called to that spiritual motherhood. That's part of being a woman. And we could say the same as for the, for the man, that he's called to spiritual fatherhood. Whether he's physically a father or not, every man is called to live out that spiritual fatherhood. And this is why we call a priest father. It's not just a title we slap on him. It's his identity. It's his, he's, his living out the meaning of his masculinity. So, there are different ways to live out masculinity and femininity, but if we're living our masculinity and femininity rightly, it's going to manifest itself in fatherhood and motherhood in one way or another. Thank you, Lord. We thank you for making us male and female. And you know, Lord, this is under such violent attack in our world today. We ask you, please, to open our eyes, our minds, our hearts, our very bodies to the full truth of what it means that you created us male and female. Thank you that for such a time as this, in the midst of this horrific battle against the meaning of our creation as male and female, thank you that in such a time as this, you have given us St. John Paul II and his theology of the body as the antidote to the crisis of our times. Thank you, Lord, for the honor and privilege of sharing this antidote through this podcast. Thank you for all of our listeners. Thank you for their support of what we are doing. We're so grateful to all of you. May you know it in your bones. You are a gift. Become what you are. Christopher West is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangioni. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you're going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes.